Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, October 29th, 2020. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. Welcome to our third year, Courtney. Oh my goodness. You're the best. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> so it's it's almost- been a... It's been a good, consistent thing, despite my family stuff, but you know, that, that we are showing up for this despite all of the challenges and it's truly a bright spot. And I, I think my family in particular loves our on the table thing because, oh, they're really, really happy about the cookie. Oh my gosh. (laughs) testing (laughs) i had to struggle to find food conversation this week because all i've been doing is making cookies me too (laughs) Uh, and nobody is upset about it not one person (laughs) not a bit not a bit and we're going to talk about that one next time yes in two weeks not this episode but the next episode so but yes it's going to be a fun fun discussion i'm looking forward to that one all right but for now, we have on the needles, on the easel, on the table, and on the nightstand. And once again, Courtney is going to lead off on the needles. Yay! Well, I feel like these are total baby steps, but I am on the short row section of my Color Love scarf or shawl. It took a little bit of technical support from you to figure out what I should be counting. I'm not, you know, I can knit, but there's something about the vernacular of it that takes a little, you know, getting used to again or getting into the knack of it. And and I think that each pattern designer probably has their own language or way of saying things. So you're, you were much more accustomed to her patterns and you helped me figure out the count. And I did learn a new technique this week though. Awesome. But I think like her, the directions in that I also found confusing because as we were talking it through, I wasn't even sure what she was asking. And I had knit her color affection, which is very similar. And this is a more recent edition. And I went back and looked at those instructions and I found those to be a little bit more clear. I felt these were not, not quite as clear, but yeah, it was just, I think so. And I think it's the count I've kept it consistent and it looks very similar to the pattern photo. Um, So I think it's where it's supposed to be. It might be a couple stitches ahead in terms of where the grade happens. I don't know because it's a shawl and it's not, you know, I'm not trying to fit a bodice or something like that. I think it's okay. But I ran into the problem of needing to add on a ball of yarn in the middle of a very long short row. (laughs) And so I was looking at different techniques and one that I saw that I've never done before. Normally I just sort of wait till I'm at the end of a row and sort of start another ball. But this one was nowhere near it. And I didn't want to take out the stitches. And I found a technique that was basically knitting five stitches of that same color together. And then just making sure that you only knit those same stitches 
you know, you didn't double them up on the next row. So it didn't throw off your count or grow. And it it very nicely blends in. I know where they are, but oh my gosh, what a great seamless way to, to weave in the ends. So I, you know, making progress, I'm so slow, but I am watching the very beginning of the West Wing while I'm doing it. And my younger son is coming in and it's so crazy relevant. I don't, I love that show. We just watched the goldfish episode and anybody who has seen the West Wing who knows the goldfish episode, it's my favorite. (laughs) So that is my knitting update, which feels like so tiny compared to the mountains that you knit, but I'm still knitting. That's amazing. And like, if I started sewing or painting or something, I would be the exact same way. Thank right? you. And I would not expect to keep up with you, who is prolific and awesome at both of those things. Um, but so this is Colored Love by Vera Valamaki. Yes. Correct. And it's all, it's kind of swoopy. What parts have you done so far? Okay. So it's like a smile shape. And so I've done the the beginning main color pool and I've done the main color and the white stripe with all the speckles. And your main color is what color? My main color is that rusty Malabrigo. And then the stripes are the something pashmina called West O-E-S-T. Madeline Tosh are, are those stripes. The other color two or whatever is the the joe sharp mulberry silk which i thought that it might feel really different but now that they're all knitted together it feels very cohesive cool and that's so like a turquoise it's a yeah a very pale pale pond color i guess and that is the short row section that is not very short <laughs> there you know it's like 300 stitches So I'm just kind of moving my way back and forth. I think I might be at the halfway point or almost to the halfway point, which is so crazy exciting. (laughs) That is exciting. Yeah. So it's, it's going really well. It's um, the, the needle is full and I can do, I don't know, a couple rows a night. Well, yeah, maybe six or six rows a night. Definitely long. It looks amazing. Those color choices are fantastic. All right. So yeah, but I need you? They're, they are focused <laughs> is what is going on. I'm still encountering drama with my Celtic cardigan or Celtic cardigan. I don't know. Hmm. By Aceta Krebs. And this is, uh, I posted a picture of it. It's uh, a top-down raglan open front cardigan with a Celtic cable band around the collar and the edge of the sweater. And then the that part is fun. The other fun part is the yarn I'm using, which is from Blue Brick in her Killarney sock, but she started doing sweater sets. You get a big honkin' skein of a solid color and then two smaller skeins of a gradient. And she's kind of known for her gradients, I would think. One of the things she's known for. So you can use those on the sleeves. So the colorway I got is Electric Avenue. So the body is gonna be all this super dark charcoal gray and then the sleeves are Electric Avenue, and they start off in the charcoal, go through a lighter gray, through a pale pink, 
to magenta and end up in a purple. It's gorgeous. And it's an amazing gradient. You can't tell where the change starts, which is fabulous and kind of frustrating. Like, wait, how much more do I have to go? So my first problem was, and I do want to say none of these are pattern problems. These are all fully my fault because I didn't swatch. Children, you need to swatch. Do you need to swatch everything? Like if you're knitting a scarf, like no. I didn't swatch this. No. Okay, Unless good. you're worried about running out of yarn or there is something specific about it. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't usually swatch for scarves either. Sweaters, you really probably should, unless you've like worked with the yarn before and know what your gauge is, which I haven't with this one. But my thought process was it's fingering. The pattern calls for using a size US4 needle. That's what I usually use for my fingering weight sweaters. Let's do it. Sounds good. And I think the pattern gauge is actually, or the, the gauge for the, for the pattern is a little bit tighter than I normally do fingering weight sweaters at, especially for the sleeves. So I probably could have gone down a needle size. Yeah, but I didn't. I also was didn't feel like knitting it on a size three. I was like, yeah, four seems reasonable. I can work with a four because it's a lot of sweater. So I started off with the, the raglan part and then got to the part where you separate for the sleeves. Cables are looking great, but the sleeve part looked really big. I kept trying it on the body after I separated it and knit a few, like an inch or so past the sleeves and the sleeve part just looked huge. So I thought I'd try it on, see what was going on. The body part fit fine when I tried it on, but again, the sleeves looked huge. I was like, this is, I don't want to knit the whole body and then find out the sleeves are not going to fit. So I decided to knit one of the sleeves, see if it fit, started knitting it. It was huge. I mean, like I don't know, seven inches too big. It was craziness. I don't, so I don't know what was going on there. Something, the gremlins attacked my sweater as well, apparently. So um, what are you going to do? So I ripped it out. Ah! It was fine, uh, you know, because it was fine. I, did, I hadn't done that much, right? The sleeve is all just stockinette. It was not a big deal. I had my lifeline in, you know, and then it was, it was a little like watching the cable come undone was a little... Because yeah. there was slip stitches and I-cord edging, and that was a little bit, little bit much to watch. Um, but then part of what I needed was to make it shorter and have fewer stitches. So that was actually, it didn't feel as complicated making it, redoing it, or it didn't seem to take as long. And I already, you know, I knew learning the cable pattern was a big part of the learning process. And then in between, it's just miles of stockinette. So. That part was easy. So I kind of did the same thing. We redid the sleeves, just gave them fewer stitches, didn't do as many rows. So it's a little bit smaller overall. Did another inch or so and started on a sleeve again. I've been playing with that sleeve for most of this week. So I've got the size down and now I am trying to finagle the gradient to make sure I get all of the colors because it's a really generous skein for a sleeve depending on your sleeve size, they've kind of stick arms. <laughs> so there's less yarn needed. And I want to make sure I get to all the beautiful colors. So can you, do you have enough yarn that you could sort of cut and like pull in yes. another, you have that's to do that. So I, yeah, that's oh. what I'm doing. I've done it twice now. I think I'm going to be able to get into the purple. I just need a little bit on the edge of the cuff so I can see it because it's gorgeous ending to the whole. Yeah. Thing. Other ways. So 
it'll be interesting when I'm trying to match the second sleeve with all these colors, but the, the gradient is really subtle. So it's been a little tricky trying to figure out how much to pull out and where to cut it so that you don't end up with a hard color change. Right. I still have that lovely gradient, but I want all the colors. So I have to like make sure it's close enough to where it's starting to change, but not so different that you're going to be able to really see it because it's so subtle. It's just, it's amazing. I love it. So I'm very excited. I think I've got it figured out. And then once I get this sleeve done, I can go back and hit the body and the other sleeve should be much easier because I will have worked out all the kinks. I think. When I was choosing the yarn for my scarf and was talking to the woman at Imagine It, she had this great technique. Like she knew, you know, just by looking at a strand of the yarn, like, oh, this, this ochre color will be like four or five stitches. And then you'll have like, she could just tell from the length. I had never thought about it like that. Like mm -hmm. how many times it would wrap around would equal yeah. stitches. And for that kind of little speckled thing, it was important for me to know that going in, but it must be so much harder if the gradient is it's um, super long. really subtle. Yeah. That's crazy hard. It's Good amazing. Luck Good luck it. with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I've got it. I have, the other problem is I'm mostly working on it at night. So when I'm doing my color changes, I'm like, mm, okay, I think I've got it, but I'm not really sure I need to check it in the daytime. Oh my yeah, goodness. My light is not, but so far, so far, so good. I think we're okay. Partially pick this cardigan because the sleeves are designed to be super long. And I'm kind of thinking I might even have to make my cuff extra long so that I can double it back, which will be fine. It'll be super cozy and, and comfy to get in that purple, but I'm, I'm close. So we shall see. I'm really enjoying it. And then I get to go back to doing the beautiful, beautiful cable, which is fun and makes it, it's a good combination of boring knitting and interesting knitting. And the cable repeat itself is not so long that you don't feel like you're accomplishing every, anything. There's a cable, there's cables on every other row. So you're always doing something, but overall, I think it's, 22 rows like 11 cables mm -hmm. and then you repeat so it's a nice it's like my sweet spot of keeping my interest but I feel like I'm accomplishing things you know it's like I can do three more rows and then I'm done and then start over and do you make hash marks or do you keep like a little row counter or do you just count your little stitches I have been using um, I have a paper pattern and I use see-through colored post-it tape yeah I have, some I have been trying to get into using Knit Companion, which will do it digitally. I've used it for a couple of patterns now and it, it works really well. It's very cool. But a lot of times I'm watching shows on my phone. So I can't also be using my phone to, to check my pattern. So, and the paper, like I have my knitting corner and I'm not going anywhere mostly with, especially with a sweater. So it's just my pattern is sitting there on the table next to my knitting chair with my knitting. I pick it up. I keep going. So I don't really have to to move things around, but that is how I do it. Hmm. Okay. And then I use removable stitch markers to mark the sleeve decreases and raglan increases and whatever else I need to, to mark just to make it easier to count. Yeah. I have, since I'm approaching, you know, 500 stitches on this needle, I have marked off the like hundred increments mm, yeah. um, just so that I can only count 87 <laughs> instead of 
487. That is key. How many did you cast on for that? 20. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's much easier. Those ones where you have to cast on like 200 are not yeah. for sweaters, which often you do for sweaters. Um, so the other things I'm working on, I also cast on a barley hat by Tin Can Knits. This is going to be another charity hat. I found another skate of Cascade 220 in a bright neon green called Primavera. And Barley Hat is one of Tin Can Knits. It's their simple collection, I think is what it's called. They're all free patterns. There's a hat, there's a socks, there's a cardigan, there's a sweater, forget what else. But they're like basic first time I want to knit socks or want to knit a, learn to knit a hat. Um, but cute because why not? So I've knit this one before a couple times, I think. So it's going to be my easy, mindless Zoom knitting. But I've been knitting a sleeve, so that's pretty <laughs> easy and mindless too. So I haven't gotten terribly far on that. I think once I get back to the, the cabling, I will get back to the barley for my, my Zoom knitting so I can get a few of those sent off. And then I did a swatch for my Atlantica, which is my other sweater that I want to get started. And November is Nano Swaymo, which is uh, National Knit a Sweater Month instead of National Write a Novel Month. And November is my birthday month, so I often have a birthday cast on kind of thing. So, so I will probably start that one next month which will be this month by the time this drops. And this is by Audrey Borrego and is in the, pom the latest pom-pom issue. So I did my swatch. This is the one where I had the, the one yarn and I thought it was going to be fine. I wouldn't have to do it whole double and then realized it was the same weight as the yarn called for. So I had to order more yarn so I could do a double and it looks really cool. But yeah, I am a really loose knitter, I guess. Yes, because I had to go down a needle size and my gauge was still too big. So I think I'm going to end up knitting the smallest size sweater so that I will get like the second or third size somewhere in there. There may have to be some more mathing going on, but I'm excited to get that one started at some point. But it's that cool, oh, what is the cast on called? It's the, the cuff that I did on the blue swirly sweater. The, the really invisible, super stretchy one. Yep. Yeah. So, so again. But it starts off with provisionally cast on 200 stitches, uh, which is, you know, not fun. But, you know, it'll be my birthday. So what else what am I going to have to <laughs> sit down and cast on in provisionally a million stitches? So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I've been super, super monogamous on my, my cardigan. Good. So I think, Progress. I think I've got it. That is it. What is on the easel? Well, I thought I'd tell you quick about what's on the sewing table. The sewing, as I've mentioned, is something that's a hobby that I want to have to break up my painting because the painting is absolutely what I want to be doing eight hours a day, but it's hard to sit and paint for eight hours a day. I'm very curious to make my own clothes. So I'm on this journey. I have started and stopped this journey several times for mostly time reasons. And now I find myself with a little more time and the desire to keep my hands busy in a different way. And so I have been making muslins, which are the practice garments from patterns that I own. And I made a muslin last time of the Fern Top by Pattern Scout. And that's a pattern that you can get digitally and print it out at home and piece all the pieces together. Or if you're like me and your husband has a giant plotter at his office, we can have it printed there. 
I made the muslin out of a pink fabric last week or last time. And I showed you that super cute woodland print. And I sort of got scared that it wasn't going to be drapey enough, that it would be a little too stiff for this pattern. It has kind of a peplum skirt. I'm going to hold it up for you. So it has like a little sleeve and then it has these darts in Wait, the front. Is that it? You made this it? Is, I made this. That's awesome. Thank you. Sewing is so fast. <laughs> I know. Sewing is, is very satisfying. And I mean, I think I probably made the whole thing in three hours. Um, oh this, is, this is a pretty simple top, although the pattern is great because you can do like a bigger cuff on the sleeve. You can do a straight skirt and not have this box pleat happening. I like the box pleat because it helps give you a pretty hip curve. I do not have a serger still. I'm researching them and I just can't decide. And so the, the interfacing, which is the part of the shirt that goes up against your neckline, I just interfaced it with some fusible interfacing and the edge here, Monica, you can see is kind of just um, zigzag stitched. And that's something that I kind of want to encase in seam tape, but it's totally wearable right now. And it, I have a cardigan that matches it and it's fun. I feel really good about that. And then I was thinking, I have all of these patterns. And if I go to a fabric store or I'm trying to decide what I'm making next, I often feel like, oh, I wish I could remember the yardage on that, that I need and what I was doing was just buying like two and a half yards if I liked a fabric, which feels a little bit wasteful because not everything requires that much. So I found this really cool downloadable package for the sewing planner on Etsy. And I'll put a link to it in the, in the notes, but it's like a little sheet. Well, it's a whole set of sheets where you can write up your project, the name of it, what notions do you need, how much fabric. You can attach swatches and I just taped in a picture of the pattern so that I would know what pattern it was. And I did it for every single pattern that I own. And then I totally nerded out and I bought myself this little planner off of Amazon, which is not my favorite place to buy anything. But, but then I was able to make tabs for each type of garment because I happen to own a lot of patterns. That's adorable. And then I can take this whole little booklet to the fabric store or, you know, wherever and look for either notions. Some of the more complicated patterns need zippers or elastic or different interfacing. And I just feel like it's so much more efficient for me to have it all in one place. So I can put the fabric samples in there. And then I have this like sewing reference sheet, which this is huge for me. This has um, a stretch gauge for stretch fabrics, jerseys and knit stitches. So that, cause a lot of patterns will say, oh, you need 40% stretch for this to fit properly. And then I put in like a little tape measure in there because some fabrics come on a 45 inch bolt and some come on a 54. And a lot of places that I shop are fabric discounters and they come on like a 60 or a 62 inch bolt. And so figuring out 
the yardage that I need and not be wasteful about it is kind of important to me because I'm trying to make this a sustainable project. So that's my my nerding out with the sewing stuff. That's awesome. It's like a little analog portable Ravelry for sewers. Exactly. Yeah. So I, like if I'm out shopping for yarn, I can flip through my Ravelry queue or favorites or whatever and find patterns. And that's kind of what that tells you what you already have. And that's awesome. Plus, of course, you made it adorable. So thank you. I really like that. I can take a sleeve from one blouse and put it on another blouse or take the pockets from one skirt and put them into another skirt. You know, you know what I mean? Like you can modify patterns and I like being able to see it this way. And I was realizing that I had patterns in Pinterest, patterns in Etsy, patterns in Instagram. And I just had this jumble. And when I was at the fabric store, I couldn't figure out where did I even have that pattern from? And I couldn't remember things. And there isn't really a good, that I know of, a good online sewing database like that for... Mm -hmm for what I needed it to do. Plus I'm incredibly analog anyway. Yeah. There's no, there's no way around it. So that was me nerding out in a big way. And I had even made a couple years, maybe last year, you know how people do that make nine at the beginning of the, I've seen knitters do it too, where they'll make, you know, plan their nine things out. I had made one a couple years ago and it's still, I mean, aside from one thing, I still want to make all of those things. <laughs> so anyway, that's my hobby right now, apparently. But my real, real love is the painting. And I have felt a lot better about sitting down and doing some painting. And I did a couple pieces for Lemon Latitude this week. And I didn't do as much writing as I normally do, but it still felt good to put them out into the world and to be thinking in that trajectory again. One of our listen, I think she's a listener. I should know this, but she's definitely an Instagram friend of mine, Tori, who lives in New Hampshire. She had spent a lot of time in Okinawa and she sent me her entire photo album from Okinawa. And I really am excited to dive into her pictures and and do honor to to that favorite place of hers and so I have a lot of photo references for that and that's very delightful I've also been getting ready for Gwashvember everybody's favorite month of the year <laughs> and doing some I, I did a yeah right I did a little painting process video yesterday of a couple of persimmons because uh, our friend and listener Kelly um, had asked me about some gouache tips and I just wish I could sit down with people and show them how I get gouache to behave because I think everybody does it a little bit differently. I was really nervous to film that for some reason but then once I got going and it was just my hands, I was a little more comfortable. You looked very cute. I was wondering how you got the camera positioned. I clipped it to the shelf behind me here because 
I wanted it like sort of straight on. And then I have this arm that I can, it's like an attachable arm and that's for like overhead so that I can paint hands-free. I really do intend to do more of those, but I'm not sure that it's the tech side of it that eludes me. I don't want to start a YouTube channel or anything like that. I just want to be able to, and maybe Instagram live is the way to go. I don't know. I'm talking to um, Charlotta from Blue Shine Art. And she did say that she just, she either records it and then does a live or, or just does a live and then doesn't look at it, at it again, you know, so that she doesn't cringe and edit herself or anything like that. So gouache vember starts on Sunday and Daria from Hey Hooray Design has a list of prompts up and it's one prompt a day and you can interpret it however you like. And I'm doing mine in an eight by eight sketchbook, um, single page. Oh, I scanned and bound all of my paintings from last year's gouache vember. I forgot that I did that. So this is a particular thing for me. Last year, I decided I was going to do it in a book. But what happens is, if you're painting on one side and then painting on the other, they sort of smudge each other. And so I had to put in all of these vellum sheets over, over one painting in each page so that they wouldn't wreck the facing page. So this year I've decided that I'm just gonna paint one per page. It might smudge a little bit against the white of the other page, but at least it's not wrecking. I don't, I don't know, it makes sense in my head, I guess. And my sketchbooks don't normally get messed up. So I'm thinking that that will be a better way to do it. That's my plan. I love her prompt list. It's always good to get prompts from someone else and see how different and similar the whole group is interpreting things. Interesting. I mean, I'm, I won't be participating, but it was interesting to see what, what kind of things she came up with. Yeah, it's, it's always very delightful. And I, for some reason, even though it's the busiest time of year, I always manage to do nearly all of the prompts. So I'm happy about that and happy for that goal, even though I'm you know, really gearing up with the Christmas chapbook and, and Lim and Latitude. It's, it's, things are rolling, if you will. And then the other quick thing that I wanted to tell people about was that I took an Indian embroidery class like a month ago, more than a month ago. Um, it was in between my two Connecticut trips and I just needed a good, totally different activity. And I took this Indian embroidery class through Tatter, which is, um, I think it's an actual shop back East and they are doing online classes right now. And the teacher was Shanaz Khan, and I'll put a link to that, but she really showed some great techniques for mirror work, which is a really popular Indian embroidery technique where you make a frame out of embroidery thread and then the backing, that little mirrored piece is basically tin cans cut up into circles or anything shiny. Um, you can get 
you can use sequins, you can use, you know, any kind of shiny metallic. And so I took that class and made like all of these really cute little medallions. And she went over some basic embroidery stitching and it was a really cool class. And I, I want people to know about that, her as an instructor and that site, cause it might be good for, I thought these would make awesome Christmas tags, like gift tags, that kind of thing. So yeah, they're, yeah, they're really pretty. And I think it wasn't that long of a class and I don't know if she'll offer it again, but Tatter might be a good source if you're looking to sort of find something for this fall. So we will make sure that that is linked somewhere in the notes. And that's, that's a mountain of very different things, but there you have it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. On the table. We're not talking cookies this time, which is very difficult, but next time we will dive into it. Yeah, so the first thing I picked out for this time is a lemon ricotta pasta. And that was from the Clever Meal. I think I found it on Pinterest. I was looking for something simple. And we have quite a few lemons on our lemon tree in the backyard. So Monday is always pasta night at our house. So I'm always trying to find new, new ways of doing it. And it was super simple, really simple. You could almost do it, like as long as you have the ricotta, you probably have everything else in your house, which was great. So you mix the ricotta with a bunch of lemon zest and lemon juice and Parmesan cheese as well. I think you put a little oil in there to kind of loosen it up and you throw some spinach in with your pasta while it's cooking just at the end. So you get some greens going as well. And then you mix it all together, maybe add in a little of the cooking water. It was really nice. I think I had doubled it because I was had the two different sets of pasta. I could have probably backed off a little bit on the amount of ricotta. It was a little bit goopy. Oh, and I used ravioli. So I think that added to the general cheesiness going on. But definitely something I would make again. Easy, lovely. I was a fan. And then I did, as promised, try out doing a stir fry with the shredded tofu because I had, I had done the, the spetzel last time and so Melissa Clark had a recipe in the Seattle Times actually. So you do the shredded tofu and you make uh, like your sauce and you use shiitake mushrooms that you've sliced and then you throw in, supposed to throw in some edamame at the end. My grocery store decided not to have edamame so I had to go with frozen peas which is not nearly as exciting. But they have frozen, they didn't have frozen edamame? No, they had no, there was no edamame to be found. Uh, it, I, I have given up trying to understand my store. <laughs> you never know. You never know what they will have. But it was, it was still delicious. It, it wasn't super saucy, which was fine. I think because you've got the shredded tofu, it's all so spread out and the sauce really gets absorbed into it. So you get all the flavor. And I think if you had much more sauce then it would just be overwhelming but it was it was it was really nice I enjoyed that so I kind of I kind of like the shredded tofu in the stir fry as well because I feel like it doesn't matter how much I try and press it if I do it in cubes it ends up falling apart anyway like I have not come across a good system for stir frying it and getting it all crispy on the outside so why not just shred it and call it good I've only gotten it to get crispy in the oven. Yeah. And I like that concept, but for a quick meal, not going to happen. All right. 
that's that's my thing. Adventures in Beans is still going strong. I think I'm on week six or something. I don't know. I haven't keep I've been keeping track. Time has no meetings. I had to reorder some more beans from Rancho Gordo. So I up all of them, which I think was pretty good. And I just got an email from him today. They're going to be restocking in the middle of November. I'm very excited to see what comes back. So should be pretty exciting. This week I made a fennel, white bean, and potato soup from their Rancho Gordo vegetarian cookbook. Because I decided to embrace fennel because we had all those experiments where the fennel was okay. And this used this called for four bulbs of fennel. I think I just did three, but you slice it up and you caramelize it and it just blended in. And then you do the potatoes, cook them in the bean broth. The beans are already cooked. And then you add them in right at the end, add some fennel fronds. It was lovely. Served it with a green I think it was like a it was it was a mix from Trader Joe's because apparently it's apple season now we've moved on from pumpkins it's all apples all the time it was kind of a cool little little salad very fall served some cheese and bread on the side it was lovely it was a really good really good soup nice and that's what's been on my table okay well we tried another version of the wiener schnitzel from the mad hungry cookbook from Lucinda Scala. And I like her recipe a little bit better because it called for mixing some Dijon into your egg wash. And I think that added flavor was necessary. I still think I would love to put a pile of parsley into it, which is not typical for schnitzel, but I love parsley. So my kids don't, aren't crazy about it, but I think it could use it. I think the parsley would be good. And the mustard is like an In-N-Out burger. That's their secret. Really? My understanding, well, that's one of their secrets is like they spread mustard on it and then they griddle it, the burgers. That gives it that little special flavor. I love mustard. I think it seasons things really nicely and it adds, I'm always afraid to, to add salt in particular to pork. This seasoned it just enough so that it was... It was, it was much more flavorful than my first version, which I did two weeks ago. That went really well. I also, I was really, really interested in that cauliflower with pancetta and Parmesan that I saw in the New York Times. It came through my email. I flagged it. I was really interested in trying it. We had my father-in-law here and he wasn't so crazy about vegetables, period. And so I waited until he was back with my sister-in-law. And then I made a gigantic tray of the cauliflower with the pancetta and the Parmesan. I didn't follow her recipe exactly because she wanted me to render the uh, pancetta on the tray with the cauliflower. And I am way more interested in lightening it up a little bit. And so I rendered it first and I probably went a little bit too far. I should have just like got it going because it did need a little bit more. I wanted it a little bit more tender. Overall, it was really salty. I didn't add any of the salt that she called for, but between the pancetta and the Parmesan cheese, and I was supposed to do this lemon dressing on top of it all, but it was pretty good as is. And this was my lemon crisis. I was in my kitchen, very upset with myself because I had just gotten home from the grocery store and realized that I forgot to buy lemons that I needed for this recipe and was 
getting ready to call my neighbor Ann down the street and see if she had a lemon. And I looked out on my patio and saw my very sad lemon plant, my lemon tree that I have been growing this whole time, which was neglected when I was back East with my dad. And it lost all of its leaves except two sad leaves. It has four blossoms on it, no leaves and like five lemons, six lemons. So, so I went and picked a lemon off the lemon tree. Isn't it satisfying? (laughs) It was very satisfying. And I used the lemon and it tasted great. Tasted like a lemon. (laughs) Shocking. I know. I was just, you know, I guess it's, I'm chalking it up to that weird grieving thing where you you're just not functioning fully. So I'm getting a good laugh at that. And I'm hoping that it comes back. I'm not sure how to get, it needs leaves. Like that's how it does its thing. So I'm not sure how to resuscitate my lemon tree. The cauliflower pancetta thing, a little too salty for us. I think I would do maybe like half the pancetta next time calls for four ounces and a giant head of cauliflower. And I think it needs some herbs. I'm not sure what would be best, but I'm thinking something like parsley or chives is very flavorful, but it needs a little lightening in a way. I absolutely adore cauliflower. We did it with an orange cauliflower. So it was really pretty and autumnal, but Yeah, it was just a little too salty for us. So aside from cookies, (laughs) schnitzel and cauliflower, I can't wait to talk about this cookbook. It has been a real hoot to, you know, like, oh, I need to make, and then everybody is weighing in with what they want. And oh my gosh, it's fun. Yeah, it's pretty good. My um, boy one went through and marked a bunch of recipes and some of them I was surprised, but I was like, oh, I didn't. Okay, sure. I'll consider that. And I mostly haven't. I'm like, this is what I want to make. And <laughs> if it happens to be marked, I mean, I might. And, there, and some of them were ones that I had wanted to, to make. But yeah, it's been interesting. And, and this will lead us into On the Nightstand, it has been nominated for Best Cookbook for Goodreads, their 2020 awards. Really? Yeah. Good to hear. As has uh, Vegetable Kingdom, which Great. we also So apparently we have excellent taste. So do you want to tell people what this cookbook is since we're dancing around it? I don't know if we named oh, I it. Think we, I think we mentioned it last time. It's 100 Cookies by by Sarah Kiefer. The baking book for every kitchen with classic cookies, novel treats, brownies, bars, and more. She's the one who vaulted the pan banging technique into it went viral after she announced it. I'm, I know that we've been pan banging for years and years, some of us, but she's definitely launched it and she can take all the credit for it. I don't mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was good. But, and so then the other thing that was what I spent the morning doing was, was voting in the the Goodreads long lists. Um, Oh, some of it. I still, I still need to make what did I need to still vote on? Historical fiction, I think, because, and this is weird, I, I feel like last time I was talking about how I totally used to be a historical fiction reader, and now I'm just reading fantasy and romance. I had read maybe half of the historical fiction choices, and they put in, I don't know, 10, 15 books in their long lists. Fantasy, I had only read one so far. Wow. So, I don't know. I, there was another, like, 10 that are either 
in my Kindle at the moment or in my queue at the library. So I have plans to get there, but I'm like, wait a minute, what happened? What have I actually been reading? It's very interesting. Hmm. That is funny. Yeah. So I, I have not been able to decide on my, my favorite historical fiction yet. Okay. I'm going to go look at that list. It was interesting. The best book, there were some interesting choices. I had to make some tough calls there. Yeah. I felt I felt like the list that I in which I have read things I have actually read a decent number of the top choices. So that was kind of fun. It's more fun to read more than one of the books. Right. Although if you've only read one, it makes it easier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I've only read like I'm looking at the list now. I've only read like five of the best fiction. Oh my gosh, I've read a lot of the and I just got that new Ken Follett for Adam. I've read a lot of the historical fiction. Yep. And I'm about to talk about one of them right now. Oh, nice. So, so I, off, yes, I think I left you with a cliffhanger is that I was reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. It's fantastic. This is the one with the two sisters from outside of New Orleans that grow up in a small town that is all very light-skinned Black people. The sisters move to New Orleans. One of them ends up marrying a very dark-skinned man, and they have a child. The other one runs away even more and starts passing as white and has a daughter who, as far as she knows, is white. So it's kind of the story of the sisters and the story of their daughters. I hadn't realized the time period that it took place in. I thought it was super modern, and it's really the 60s and the 80s, kind of. So that was an interesting... That's why I'm surprised to see it on this best historical fiction list. But okay. Yeah, I think I thought that was that was one of the things I was like, really? But I guess it ends in the 80s. So that is actually a while ago now. Shocking as yeah. that you might find it. So I'm still Seriously. kind of kind of unsure that the year 2000 has happened. You know, that's still <laughs> in the future, really. But the 80s is fairly, fairly long time ago now. Um, but yeah, I thought that was great. Everybody should read it. It's it's a book group one for me. For sure. Yeah. And we did read it with my book group, but I was away for that discussion. And I'm sad that I missed it because I would love to hear how people interpreted that or how, how they felt about her passing as white and having a black neighbor that was just people were scandalized about. And I don't know. I think there's so much meat to it. Or so, yeah, so I mean, and even just the family relationships and how people related to each other and yeah, what family means. And it was, it was pretty, pretty amazing, I thought. Yep. And then my next one was Sex and Vanity by Kevin Kwan, which is a horrible title. I don't know why they picked that, but it's a delightful <laughs> book. He wrote Crazy Rich Asians. And I think this is his fourth book or so. Uh, and it's a retelling of A Room with a View by Ian Forster. And there was that super fun movie with Bonham Carter many years ago, maybe back in the 80s even. It started off, at least, as a pretty straightforward retelling of it, which was kind of annoying. But then he added enough tweaks and personalized bits in that it didn't become a totally different story, but there was enough other things happening that I really ended up enjoying it. So it is the story of Lucy, who is 19 when the book begins and she is attending a wedding in Capri, crazy rich wedding of a friend of hers. Very elaborate. I think his books are all very high society and fabulous wealthy. And so you get this kind of escapism 
so she is there and it's kind of the first wedding she's attending where she is friends with the couple and not just part of the family. So she feels very grown up. But there's a guy there, George, who for some reason she just doesn't like him. His mom is really weird, uh, but they keep running into each other. She thinks he's very handsome, but doesn't like him for some reason. But then she has a little bit too much to drink at the reception and they end up hooking up, getting caught, and her chaperone kind of whisks her away and it picks up five years later. She is now engaged to like Bachelor of the Year and she is from old New York money. So there's, we get New York crazy rich society. George shows up again. He and his mom are renting a house in the Hamptons down the street from her family and uh, shenanigans ensue. So uh, (laughs) it's a romance that happens. I think the thing I like about his books, I feel like they are presented as being fluffy and, you know, all this lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of thing. And they are, but they always, or the two that I've read have both had this kind of undercurrent of exploring serious issues. So classism or racism or, you know, whatever it is, Lucy's father's side of the family is old New York Dutch money. Um, but her mom is Asian American and she was, her mom was, is like a doctor and was born here and her grandfather was born here, you know, but the New York side of her family, her dad's side has always kind of treated Lucy, not quite a member of the family. So there's this whole other side of the story that is not present in the original work that just makes it a little something more than how I think it's sold, especially with the title. <laughs> yeah. So, so I really, I enjoyed that one as well. Um, and that is Sex and Vanity by Kevin Kwan. And then I listened to All the Light We Cannot See. <gasps> Had you never? No, I have read, read that. that. Yeah, oh. no, I read it when it came out. Um, but this was the summer reading for Boy 2's high school. I and see. so then the parent book club decided to read that for their October book. So I listened to it, which was pretty good. The production was fine, but there are parts... There's letters from home and that's kind of, and a lot of it is redacted. So it makes sense on a page. It's kind of hard to listen to. Other than that, it was lovely. It's still a fabulous book. Uh, It takes place during World War II mostly. It's the story of two teenagers. Uh, Marie Laure is a French girl who is living in Saint-Malo, which is on the Northwestern coast with her great uncle. And she uh, has been blind since childhood. And then Werner is a German soldier who works in radio communications. Really smart, but German soldier. Tracks their li- their whole lives and then how they come together at the this battle, the battle for Saint-Malo. It's a really beautiful book. It explores a lot of themes of good versus evil. So it is, you know, quite relevant for right now. You know, what happens when you maybe don't just, dis- you disagree with the, what your country is doing, but you want to survive and how you reconcile that there's a little bit of a mystery mysterious jewel is it cursed what's going on still a really good book I loved it yeah so I was happy to happy to reread that and then then, like the first three books that I've read for this book club that's not true the first one I hadn't read the next three were all ones that I had read so I'm the rest of the year like okay I haven't read any of these other books so I'm kind of looking forward to reading new things for for book club next up was Island of a Thousand Mirrors by Naomi Munawira, which is a short little book. And it is takes place around the Sri Lankan Civil War, which I knew nothing about. So it's the mostly the story of Yasudara, who grows up 
in Sri Lanka and then her family emigrates to the US, um, but they still have relatives back there. So it's it's a whole family, family saga uh, with also the immigrant experience. And then she and her sister go back later and it's all kind of built around the civil war and, and what it did to the country and, and the people. And, and like I said, it was a pretty short book, really beautifully written. I would recommend it. It was, it was really interesting. And that was Island of a Thousand Mirrors by Naomi Munawira. And then a not short book, <laughs> Ruin of Kings by Jen Lyons. This is fantasy like Game of Thrones. Kieran is an orphan. He was found um, on the streets of the capital by a blind musician and raised by him. So he's currently mostly working as a thief. He is attacked by a demon. Okay. And then it leads to, it turns out he is the long lost son of one of the ruling families. So he's heir to all sorts of things. So he moves into the castle and shenanigans ensue. There's prophecies and dragons and magic and sea battles and all the things. It's an epic. And it's book one. And it came out February 2019. Book three just came out. So wow, Jen Lyons is cranking them out. She's okay. not pulling in the George R.R. R. Martin and taking 20 years to write a book. She is getting us through this series. I say thank you. Um, <laughs> it was it was it was a little bit confusing. The first like two thirds of the book has kind of two starting points. Well, it has a beginning point and then it goes back to two different start points to get you up to that beginning point. So from a, a plot drivenness, it's great because each chapter flips back and forth between those two starting points and you eventually get all caught up. So you get cliffhanger and then you go to the second story and you get a cliffhanger and then you go back to the first one and then you get another cliffhanger and you go back. I'm generally pretty good at keeping up with timelines it did get kind of confusing trying to remember what he knew when, but there's a lot of things that you have to keep in your head, but there's a map, there's a glossary in the back, there's a family tree. <laughs> it's lovely. Excellent. If this is your thing, which it is, is my it Is it told from one perspective? Two. It's, okay. I can't, it, it's complicated how that, it's sort of, one, it's mostly from Kieran's standpoint. There's another character who's telling a story because they can read minds. Of course. It's yeah, a lot of death. There's magic. There's there's the underworld. There's dreams. It's, it's Ruin of Kings by Jen Lyons. And as I said, there are two more books. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to work these into my oh my gosh reading life. Lost and Found Bookshop by Susan Wings. My mom recommended this. Thank you, mom. It's a very sweet book. It's romance, more or less. More Hallmark Channel than Fabio, I would say. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Natalie is works in data analytics. Uh, for a winery in Sonoma. She finds it pretty soul-crushing, but um, uh, financially stable, which is what she wants from her life, or so she thinks. When her mom dies suddenly, she decides to quit her job, return to her childhood home in San Francisco to take care of her ailing grandfather and try and save her mother's bookshop. So San Francisco bookshop, I'm all in for that. Because it's a romance, there are two handsome gentlemen fighting for her attention. There is, um, you know, scenes around the city... There is a little mystery of a possible lost family treasure. It's a very sweet book. It's not the most San Francisco, San Francisco book. She gets a lot of stuff right. And then there's things that she gets wrong that probably don't, wouldn't bother anybody who didn't live in San Francisco. <laughs> so I'm trying to let that go. <laughs> there was a lot of rain in the fall. It's like, we don't have rain. But the author lives in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm like, oh, that explains it. Because the, like, there, were, there was a lot of varying types of rain. 
that she was had excellent descriptions of. Like, I bet she lives in Seattle because I've lived in Seattle. And there are lots of different yeah. types of rain up there, which we don't have. Anyway, enough of that. So very sweet book. And then the other one I listened to was also about a San Francisco bookstore. So apparently I'm doing a little flight here. Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, which I had never read. So I've never read that either. It was a fun book. It went a little bit 25-year-old boy going on 12-year-old boy sometimes. So I'm not sure if that's the author or just the lead character, but it was super fun. And, you know, bookstore San Francisco. So Clay has just lost his job from a tech startup and he's wandering the city streets and he stumbles across Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore and there's a help wanted sign. So he goes in, ends up getting the job as the night clerk and there are kind of, he comes to realize there are kind of two parts to the bookstore. There's the front shelves, which are traditional used books, regular people come in. And there's the back part, which is like three stories tall, huge ladders, all these leather bound tomes with gold printing and bossing and strange people come in and it's basically a lending library for them. But his boss has told him, you cannot look at these books. You're not supposed to look at these books. If you look at these books, you'll be fired. So he's like, all right. But then one of his buddies comes in and is like, well, of course we're going to look at the books. Shenanigans ensue from there. Mm-hmm. And there's a knitting museum. <laughs> it's probably the thing I was most excited about. Part of, it's part of the plot. He goes to a knitting museum. They have a, an archive of Christmas sweaters, which I thought was adorable. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. So that was a fun book. And I listened to that one. The narrator was super cheerful and high energy, which is kind of, I think, how the book was written. And they did some fun stuff with the production toward the end where he's listening to an audiobook. I really like listening to it. It was, it was good. And then finally, sorry, I'm, all, I'm done now. <laughs> Transcendent Kingdom by Yajiasi, which you just talked about. Also fantastic. Family moves to Alabama from Ghana and mm-hmm. two kids. Gifty and Nana, the brother, is like a basketball star, but breaks his ankle and gets hooked on opioids and then overdoses on heroin. Gifty becomes a scientist at Stanford and is doing research. Her mom suffers depression. It's it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful hard. It's not even it's not even really a hard read. I mean, it's serious read, and I think says a lot of important things about addiction that we don't generally acknowledge she deals with the racism racism they experienced growing up her own ambivalence about what happened to her brother and working through that um, and her relationship with her parents so many so many layers in this book the sh- the shame around depression too was really yeah surprising i guess like i don't yeah. see i don't see that as a stigmatized thing but i suppose if your parent i mean i can see how you would feel that way I thought it was just very sensitive, very sensitive book. And her writing is exceptional. Yeah, even just how she progressed through the story. And again, it did kind of flip back and forth between the current time and what she's dealing with and telling the story of her family, but not at all confusing. And and just the way that it moved through the events and what you knew about them, but then getting all the details was really impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's been a favorite of mine for the short term. How about you? (laughs) Well, I'm sort of working my way back to my reading life. I read Magic Lessons by Alice Hoffman, who is one of my favorite authors. Magic Lessons is the prequel to Practical Magic, which is one of my all-time favorite books. This is mystical realism, and this book focuses on the 
ancestors of our practical magic characters. And this is the Owens family and how, boy, the journey that we take with these women is extraordinary. From this 1600s field in outside of London, all the way to... So it's really a prequel. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it actually just focuses on Maria Owens and her daughter traveling from England to somewhere in the Caribbean and then up to Salem. And she's in Salem for the advent of the witch trials. And then they escape to New York. And there's a little bit of back and forth between New York and Salem during that late 1600s. It's talking about the history of practical magic, you know, the history of herbs and balms and midwifery and known remedies for common human ailments, basically. And then how that it, how that intersects with the puritanical life that was Salem, Massachusetts during that time and how they were really trying to just sort of rid themselves with any kind of seemingly occult. And that meant the natural world in a lot of ways because it had associations to Native American remedies and techniques. And they, I, I can't understand it because... That's not how I think, you know, I'm totally a witch. So, but her, her healing garden, her herbal gardens and all that was really richly woven into it. At the same time, I found a podcast called Unobscured, which many people have probably heard about because it's the same team behind how it's made. And they did a deep dive like a year or two ago. This is an older season for them talking about the Salem witch trials and how historians in particular are flummoxed that it even occurred because at the time women were never listened to and yet it really was according to historical documents who did this whole thing you know they were the the young girls are the ones who were apparently transfixed by some spirit and then they pointed the finger at all of these other women in the community and that's what really sort of drove up the fervor of the witch trials to be listening to that podcast while reading this book during the month of october (laughs) it just felt really steeped and wonderful and um there's both the podcast and the book used a lot of the same source documents. So John Hawthorne is one of the persecutors and his name is in both Alice Hoffman's novel and, and is in featured in the podcast. Maria Owens, I'm pretty sure is a, is a, a fictional character, but there are some names that come up in the documents in unobscured of the women who either proclaimed other women as witches or I don't know. It's, it's very interesting to me. And I haven't, I hadn't ever looked at the historical documents of it, but the, the podcast really helped. So 
Practical Magic, loved it. There are some surprising twists and it is just this wonderful journey, both geographical and spiritual that you go through with the characters. Do you need to have read the original? No, it's a complete standalone. I think if there's one thing to know about the practical magic thing is that it's really about the natural world, you know, like using herbs, that kind of thing. And she, in the, in this version, it's been a long time since I read practical magic, but she will list common remedies for ailments like headaches and cramps and that kind of thing. And that, I mean, you can go into Whole Foods and find that in the tea section or what have you. So I think it's a delightful, now it's a trilogy. There's, there's one in between that I didn't enjoy quite as much, but I loved this one. I thought it was really well done. And so Practical Magic is the original and this one is called? This one is called Magic Lessons and it's a prequel to Practical Magic. And then there's a one that goes in between them. So Rules of Magic came out a couple years ago and it takes place in New York. And what I do like about Rules of Magic and Magic Lessons is that it makes the New York connection a little bit more realistic, but you do not need to read these. If you enjoy them, you'll enjoy all of them. Apparently, CEO Max is making a uh, TV series. I hope not because <laughs> they're developing one. Well, I was really disappointed with. I loved Alice Hoffman's The Dove Keepers, and then somebody made a a movie out of that, and really, it didn't it didn't do well. And I think that it it took away from the book somehow. But that's just me, and I believe in the book, so yeah. maybe other people liked it. There is a weird book, though, that I want to, I just want to say, I have a real problem with time travel. I like I can, time traveling or you don't like reading about it. I don't like reading about it. And I almost can't buy it. I mean, I will happily, I mean, I just loved practical magic and can go big on witches. And I loved the discovery of witches series and time they, they time travel and <laughs> <laughs> i am reading what should be wild by julia fine i'm way into this book it is fascinating i cannot figure out for the life of me where it takes place and they do some weird time bending thing that i cannot figure out and i'm so frustrated that I can't put the book down because I'm trying to figure it out. But I'm here to tell you that it is super weird and very spooky. And it's just the kind of escapism that we should be wanting to read about, except that I can't figure out the time travel. And this is how I felt about Blake Crouch book. Oh, Recursion or one of his other ones. One of his other ones that everyone was crazy about. I don't know why I can't always get on board with time travel. <laughs> well, there's time travel and then there's time bending, right? Yes. So to, like, play fast and loose with the time loops and you go back and you change something. I mean, there's like Outlander where she goes back in time, right? And then she's back in time. Right. There are clear recursion and the other, like, whatever, Mr. Crouch. 
who so, does weird funky things. And it sounds like maybe this is more like that where it's supposed to be confusing. I think I need to know the rules. And, mm. and I think that discovery of witches or the time traveler's wife, or I don't, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. There are clear rules to how the time travel can happen and right. what you're allowed to do. And that, that affords me the ability to, okay, this is how it works. This one, a Gothic stunner for the 21st century. Right. So she has this plague where if she touches anything, she has the power to kill or resurrect any living thing. How have I not heard of this book? I don't know. I'll pass it off to you as soon as I figure it out. Okay. So the characters are great and really creepy, but they all keep ending up in these woods, these spooky woods. And they are, all of the women of this family are in there together, like generations of them. And they're frozen in this particular time in their lives. I think the time that they died. So We've got one who is in very modern society with her father and a cell phone and these boys who are vying for her attention. And she can't touch anyone except her dog, who is immune to her curse, if you will. And then her father goes missing and we are on a journey to find her father. And we've got a time travel in these woods and these (laughs) women are there and it's super weird and I don't know the rules and I'm upset about it. But you're into it. Oh my gosh. I am. Not only am I into it, like there's not a lot left and it is, it is so weird. And now I'm so far into it that I'm committed to figuring it out. And that is why I haven't read anything else is because I'm cursing this cursed book. So I think that's I'm what, to read it. I, it sounds very intriguing. I really hope that there's a payoff to my impatient patience because I think it has tremendous potential. It is really rich detail and weirdness, but I'll let you know. I'm so close. So close. Okay. So I'm leaving you with a cliffhanger. I know. Well, I look forward to hearing what happens. Well, not what happens, but Mm -hmm. your final vote. Okay. So looking forward to talking about cookies next time. Feel free to grab a copy of that book and uh, cook along yourself. Hand bang away. Yep. That's very satisfying. It is very satisfying. And the cookies are huge. They measure in. And I followed, not to spoil, but a little spoil. I followed directions. And some of those cookies measured over five inches in diameter, which made my people very happy. (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah. I generally made them a little smaller, I think, and they're still huge. Yeah. I can't possibly make it this big. Anyway, until next time, make sure to do something you love, like making cookies every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You ready? 52? Yeah. All righty. Craziness. Let's do it. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O.
have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.